he's hiding, and I'm sick of hiding. So, hey, you know what? Let's go check out what the Philistine garrison is doing. But he sneaks away, just him and his, his arm bearer by themselves, because he knows probably that his dad would have stopped him, because he knows the character of his dad is fearful. But Jonathan's a man of action, and he, he's a real stud in this story. And so he goes out, in contrast to his father Saul hiding with 600 men, Jonathan goes out with just one man. And the setting here, um, it's, it's kind of important to know that in the details in verses 4 and 5, whenever you see details like this in a narrative, it's because the author wants us to see the challenges. And so we have some geography in here. If you like geography in school or not, but sometimes it can be important. There was, there was a wadi or a small creek that had cut through the valley where they were between Michmash and Geba. And, and it cut through the valley and it created a deep gorge. And the gorge got really deep, and then at the place where the valley rose and the gorge went down, there was two rocky crags that kind of created cliff faces. And so this fort was at the top here because they knew they weren't going to attack from this side of the back, and they could only get approached in the valley, and it was a superior position. And then the Israelites did the same thing on the other side. And so neither one of them was really attacking. And Jonathan, he says, you know what, I'm going to go across to the other side. And what that meant was he would have to go down the cliff and then go back up the cliff to get to them, even though it wasn't very far apart. And, and those, those crags were put there, or the, the garrisons were put there, because it was insurmountable, or seemingly insurmountable. So on one side is this rocky cliff called Gozes, which means slippery. And on the other side was this, this crag named Sinna, which means thorny. And, and both carry the implication that, that it's not possible to get up there. <clears throat> And so it's likely geography kept the Philistine army from attacking and Saul from going. And yet, Jonathan, in the face of this insurmountable difficulty, this obstacle, he has a great faith in God. He believes in God with whom all things are possible. And his faith is an informed faith. It's not a blind faith. You see, he knows the Philistines are not God's people. He knows that he is part of God's chosen people. And God, Jonathan knows who God is. He's not deterred. He knows that God is all-powerful and over all things. Nothing can hinder. From what he says, he says, nothing can hinder God. He can save whether by many or by few. You see, he knows the character and nature of God. He knows God is all-powerful, that nothing can stop his hand. And that's what motivates Jonathan to get up, to take action, and say, you know what? It's just two of us. Who cares? If this is God, he can bring salvation. And so there's a lesson there for us. It's a lesson of true faith. It's built on the knowledge of God. And that faith, it rests in the power of God. And it depends upon the power of God and not our own power. You know, I think about times in my life when I've lacked faith, when I've doubted, when I've feared. You know, Mario mentioned this morning that, you know, we can look at circumstances and difficulties around us and things going on in the world. When we are more aware of all those things around us, we can grow fearful when we are less aware of God and who He is. But Christian, it's as we cultivate our awareness of the greatness and, and power of God that our faith is built. If you are challenged currently, by fear or doubt or unbelief, let me encourage you. Look up and see God who can save, whether by many or by few. God is a great and mighty God. He's over all things. Faith is built on the knowledge of God, and that faith rests in the power of God and not our own power. If you're trembling right now in the area of your life or fearful or doubting, it's likely because you're resting or trusting in your own power and not in God's. 
So Jonathan here, though, he has a great faith in God. He's just two, they're just two people. You know, maybe he recalled hearing about the great salvation that God brought through men like Samson or Gideon, but it was that that ability, that ability of God that trumped his own ability, his few numbers. So he steps out and he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. He doesn't know, he hasn't heard a word from God. And that's often how life is for most of us as Christians. We don't have any direct word from God saying, you go and do this. But we see the character, the nature of God, who God is. And then we say, you know what, what's the right thing to do here? What, what kind of action does God call his people to? And so Jonathan knows the history of Israel, knows that men like Gideon were called to action. So he gets up and says, it might, I don't know. It might be the Lord will work for us. That doesn't mean he's lacking faith. On the contrary, he has a realistic faith that says, you know, I don't know the Lord's will. But I'm going to step out in faith, trusting in him, that he might save us. It might be he might work something really big. And that's really where we're called to live our lives generally. We're called to see who God is, see his power, and step out in faith and say, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know God, but I'm going to trust in you anyway. And so he doesn't presume upon God, he doesn't know for sure, but he steps out in faith. And his loyal friend, as our bearer says, do all this in your heart. We don't we all want friends like that who are going to be with us, heart and soul. He says, I'm with you, heart and soul. I'm here. And I think that's how we're supposed to be as fellow Christians, to encourage each other and say, look, I'm in this with you. I'm going to be in faith right here with you. I'm going to fight the battle. And so Jonathan devises a plan to turn whether or not God gives him the Philistines. And he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go down that ravine, and we're going to show ourselves the Philistines. And if they say, hey, come on up here, then I know that God's given them to us. And if they say, hey, wait there, we'll come down to you, then we'll stand there. And there's something surprising. He doesn't say, then we'll go back. He says, we'll stand there and wait for them to come down. We're still going to fight, no matter what. And so Jonathan's this really tough guy. He says, you know, fine. If it's not God's will for us to go up, and if it's God's will, he'll come down. He might not save us, but we're going to fight anyway. We're going to stand and wait. And so I can imagine when they step out like they had planned, the amusement on the faces of the guards, the Philistines. And you can kind of hear that in the biblical narrative, can't you? You know, I can't. You know, here they're in a protected position on this insurmountable cliff. If any of you saw the, saw the movie The Princess Bride, there's this scene in The Princess Bride where they have these cliffs of insanity, and Vizzini and Fezzik and uh, Inigo, they go up this, this cliff only because Fezzik's like this massive, strong man, and he carries them up there, and they get to the top, and then, then they look down, this, this, this man in black, he's following, he says, inconceivable! And they're just shocked. There's no way that this man of blacks can be able to make it up. Only Fezzik, the strongest man in the world, who can make it up there. And they're like, no way. And so they start taunting and mocking the man of black. But finally, he starts to get closer, so they cut the rope. And, but Vizzini, he leaves with Fezzik. They don't expect him to actually get there. But just in case, they leave and he go. And, but they're mocking, not really expecting it. It was an impossible situation. And, and the Philistines, it's kind of that scene in my head of the Philistines, they kind of look down and they go like, hey, come on up, we'll show you something. You know, we'll teach you a lesson, as the NIV and some other versions say. You know, like, fine, yeah, come on up here. Yeah, do your best. Whatever. And they mock. Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. Woo! And they're scared. Come on up. We'll show you some things. You know, and then um, you have to be crazy to climb that cliff. No less to attack a well-armed garrison where you're outnumbered 10 to 1 at least. Because we know that there's at least 20 people there, probably more, because 20 got killed, and I bet the others ran is what the implication is. So it appears the Philistines don't expect them to actually do it. They go back to playing poker or drinking their meat or whatever bored Philistine soldiers did with their time. Because otherwise they wouldn't have caught them off guard. But clearly they were surprised. They probably looked down and were like, what in the world? 
yeah, whatever. Okay, come on up. We'll show you something. And they go back and they're, you know, they're playing their poker game or whatever they do when they're bored. And so, but Jonathan, he's crazy full of faith because he believes in God. And he's confident in Yahweh's deliverance. He believes it's only a matter of getting there, being obedient. The Lord has already given them into the hand of Israel. He says, come up after me for the Lord. Listen to his language. Come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. He is confident. He is confident in God's salvation. It wasn't personal vengeance. It was Jonathan upholding the name of the Lord and acting faithfully to see God's kingdom rule. So we see in verse 14, they make it up the cliff. They make this surprise strike on the Philistines by doing what they thought couldn't be done. And they kill about 20 men quickly. They dispatch them. You know, Jonathan slays them down and his arm bear finishes them off. And, and the camp begins to panic. What in the world has happened? You know, this is this guy is more impressive than the men in black, you know, who came up the cliff. He dispatched 20 soldiers. Man, surely this guy's a super soldier. He's superhuman. What in the world's going on? No one kills 20 soldiers. You know, it's not like the movies where they all wait one by one for you to attack, you know? I'm sure after he attacked the first couple, he probably was ganged up by a lot. And so you can understand why they begin to panic. And this garrison, even the brute squad of hardened soldiers, they, who were raiders, they mentioned the raiders because those were the bad dudes. The raiders, the ones who went out and they took names, they, they dealt blows to the lands all around them. It says even the raiders trembled. And there was a great panic. And, and then panic and then mayhem, they break out and become so great that watchmen saw who hadn't been very attentive before and Jonathan left because they didn't notice that he left. They couldn't help but notice there was a loud tumult going on. And by the way, at the same time, God sends an earthquake. And the ESV doesn't quite capture that, but the language there is actually God quakes the earth. And so they shortened it to there was a, there's a quaking of the earth. So panic and mayhem happens. Saul's a little perplexed. He assumes maybe a division of soldiers went out. So he says, count them in. See who all left. There must have been a lot of guys went there. And he found out that no, just Jonathan and his armor bearer left. And then he's still a little perplexed and confused. And so he turns to the ark of God like a talisman. He says, bring me the ark. And then he's, he says to the priest, you know, put your hand over it so you can discern what's going on. And there's just kind of weird mystical thing happening. But then Saul, the noise is so loud, he's like, oh, forget it. And he just sends the ark away. He doesn't finish even seeking God. And then... And then Saul and his men, they rally. They go into battle like I imagine. You know, it's going down the valley. They're running down the valley on one side. Saul's been running down the valley. They meet on the, in the plains there. And Saul rallies his men and they go in. And then the Philistines at the same time, you know, it was so chaotic that the Philistines probably thought there were a lot of people because certainly two people couldn't kill 20 men. So they turn around and see other Hebrews who had joined them. And the implication is that they thought those Hebrews were attacking them. So they start attacking the Hebrews. Now the Hebrews are like, yeah, we're going to attack you. And so the Hebrews that were part of the Philistine army, they turn on the Philistines. And it's like every man after the other. And there's <clears throat> chaos. They're killing each other. And now the men of Israel join Saul and Jonathan. They hear it has this kind of picture of all of Israel's in fear. The men of Ephraim are, are hiding in caves and in holes. And they all hear something's going on. They heard an earthquake. They heard shouting and running. They look out through their little holes. And they see Saul's army rushing towards the Philistine army. So they rush out with their pickaxes and their, their hoes and they join them. And the Philistines, they flee down the valley. And the Israelites, they come pursued across. The Philistines only escape around the verse 23. It ends with this triumphant statement. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. You see, God responded God, 
God honored the faith of Jonathan. It wasn't that Jonathan was manipulating God or telling God what to do. He wasn't sure. He said, it might be that God might save us. That's in contrast to people who think that somehow our faith manipulates God. But God does respond to his people and save mightily when they trust in him in faith. It says, so the Lord, 23 ends triumphantly. We think, oh, this is great. This is like a high point. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and then the battle spread a few miles west of the Beth Haven, and there's this, this military doctrine that became popularized again after hundreds or thousands of years um, by Norman Schwarzkopf back in the 90s in the first Iraqi war, and he was this guy who believed in shock and awe. I mean, he said, you know, what's our, what's our campaign, our plan? We're going to shock them. We're going to surprise attack. We're going to create a sense of awe so they fear us and panic. And when an army does that, when an army is thrown into panic, when they're shocked, or when there's a sense of awe of the enemy, it's really easy to prey upon them. And that's the sense you can hear from the Philistines. They're, they're, in a, they're in a state of shock and awe. They've been shocked by this sudden defeat of 20 men by two guys, and they've been shocked that they're turning against each other, and they're in a wall of earthquake, and, and things seem to be going really well, and the Lord's saving Israel. This surprise battle against the Philistines is going well. They have advantage of the surprise attack. This, this earthquake's creating confusion and all, and it makes it easier to fight. But then, at this pinnacle, after this says, the Lord saved Israel that day, and you think, oh, this is great. This is the turning point again. In Samuel, there's maybe there's hope here again, right? But then immediately, look down your Bibles in verse 24. So right after 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And it's kind of worded awkwardly here. It says, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening. I'm avenged my enemies, so none of the people had tasted food. When it says, the men had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul, another way of reading that is, Saul had put an oath on the people, so they were hard-pressed. They hadn't eaten all day. They've gone at least 15 miles pursuing the enemy. And by the way, when you're fighting, 15 miles is a long walk. When you're constantly pursuing and battling and pushing the enemy back 15 miles. And so they are faint. But the implication here is that God saved Israel and Saul has doomed them. He's, he's, he's putting an oath on them. It's not from God. It's not God motivated. It was He was motivated by his own Vengeance, He said, so he laid an oath to people saying, Curse the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Not until God's people are avenged, or God's name is avenged. Saul's being motivated very differently than Jonathan here. That's what we're meant to see. And it causes very different results. And so the second thing, the second point that we're going to see in this account is that when God's people fail to follow him by faith, trouble comes. It's kind of a theme the last couple chapters of Samuel. When we don't follow him by faith, trouble comes. Now, it's reality is that trouble's all around us anyway, but we allow that trouble into our own lives when we don't trust in him and follow him by faith. There's this old illustration that Ravi Zacharias gives in one of his books, and he talks about this clockmaker, and, and he has a shop, and there's a, a clock in the window, and there's this worker, and every morning the worker goes by the clockmaker window, and he sees this clock, and he stops, and he sets his watch, an old school watch, a wristwatch with dials, not digital, and he sets his watch to this clock every morning, very consistent on the way to work, and the clockmaker is thinking, what in the world's going on? And so finally one day, he catches him outside the store, the, the, the clockmaker shop, and he says, Hey, what are, you, what are you doing? Why do you do that every day? And he says, Well, I, I've got a cheap watch, and it doesn't keep time very well. 
And every morning I reset my, my watch objectively to your clock since you're a clockmaker. And the clockmaker kind of sheepishly says, you know, the reason I put that clock in the window is because it's, it's, it's not a very good clock. I'm not going to sell it. Um, it's really just for looks. And so it doesn't keep time very well. And, um, and the watchmaker he says, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed that you're doing that. And he says, well, why are you doing that anyway? He says, well, every day, you see, I, I'm responsible for sounding the, the end of the workday bell that rings at 5 p.m. every day. And so I set my... And, and the clockmaker says, oh, my goodness, you see... I reset that clock outside every day to the bell that rings in the factory next door. You know, it's, it's important that what we're relying on is actually reliable. Um, it, it's important that our lives are set to something objective that we can trust in. You see, Saul is, is setting his watch, is setting his life, not objectively to God, but he's setting it to circumstances or things he sees or, or how he feels or his own vengeance or whatever his motives are, his personal motives. But he's not setting or ordering his life objectively. And Saul was off. He even tries using the ark with a little talisman and he tries figuring things out. Now, there's another uh, detail that I, I didn't specify or talk about. And they say who it was who was with Saul. Do you remember that in the very beginning? It says Abiah was with Saul. And Abiah was the grandson of Phinehas, one of the most corrupt priests in Israel. And Phinehas was the son of Eli. And if you remember, Phinehas' line was cursed. And Abiah's actually, his, his uncle's name was Ichabod, which means no glory. And so that whole line of the priesthood was, was a cursed priesthood that was illegitimate. And so you have Saul, who is now no longer following God's word. He's not setting his life according to God's word. He didn't listen and obey Samuel when Samuel gave him God's word in chapter 13. He didn't listen to Samuel, and so Samuel departs. Now, that's symbolic of not just Samuel leaving, but the word of God leaving Saul, and Saul no longer following God's prophet and his word. At the same time, so Saul's trying to figure out what to do. So Saul turns to a corrupt priesthood that's not qualified to be priest any longer, who still wears the ephod. He wears the looks of a priest. He acts like a priest, but... God's already said, you're no longer priests, your whole line. And so Saul kind of gets this religious symbolism and surrounds himself with looks and the appearance of religion. And so Saul's not guided by God's word. He's, he's surrounded by the appearance of religion. And that's who he turns to. And it turns out it's not a great day. The people of Israel are hard-pressed because Saul had laid this oath and he, he had stupidly made the selfish oath because he was interested in his own vengeance. And it was, the, uh, it was what stopped them from pursuing the enemy really any further. They were all weak. You know, if you said that an army runs on its stomach, and I can only imagine that they've been fighting all day long, and it's, it's nighttime now. And then they're fighting all day long, because most likely Jonathan went out in the morning. He got up and was like, I'm done with sitting around. And so now they've been fighting all day long. They're on 15 miles, which take a long time to get there. The people are weak. They got no ability to run and pursue the Philistines, all because Saul, without reason, was guided by his own vengeance. And Jonathan didn't know his dad had made this silly oath like that, and 
He was busy fighting the Philistines. So they, they pursued the Philistines into the woods, into this forest that's in between the valley going towards the coast, and the Philistines are running into the woods for cover, and so they're pursuing the Philistines into the woods, and, it's, and, and they have this, this, this picture of there's honey kind of dripping down everywhere. You know, the woods would have been right on the edge of fields, and so the, the, the bees would have had their honeycombs there on the edge of fields and flowers so that they could... Um, populate their honeycombs with honey and food for their young. And so they get there, and this honey is dripping down. Jonathan's like, oh my goodness. And so he, he finds his honeycomb, he gets it with his staff, and he brings it up to his mouth, and he eats it, and he's refreshed. You know, honey is like nature's best energy food. If you're, if you're lacking energy, it's a great energy source. So it says his eyes were bright. There was a euphemism for saying he was refreshed, he was energized. One of the people around him goes, oh, your dad, he gave this oath. He said the curse would be anybody if they ate. And, and then he finds out how, how dumb his dad had been. And he says, my father, in verse 29, he says, my father has troubled the land. Why? His father was not being guided by God or by God's word. He had this illegitimate priesthood that was kind of falsely set up, and he had his own vengeance over guiding him. He was off. And so... Jonathan says in verse 29, See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? You know, like how much better are the people have eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So he lays the blame, which is appropriately, and that's what we're meant to see, on the fact that Saul, not following God, not in faith, and now the, the, the victory is really not great. People could have eaten, they could have had the strength to continue to pursue the Philistines, but as it is, they have to stop at Ajalon after a day of fighting that couldn't go on. So in verse 31, they're so famished that it's probably the next day now, after this nighttime, the Israelites, they, they kill the Philistine sheep and oxen and the calves and whether animals they could find. And it's this picture, they're so ravenously hungry that they killed them immediately and then they either cooked them or they just eat them raw. Now that was against God's law, his ceremonial law. But, you know, I, I don't think their goal was to disobey God. They were so hungry that they wanted to eat something. You know, you ever feel like I'm so hungry I can't eat a horse? Well, that's what they were doing, you know. <laughs> whatever they felt, whatever they, whatever they found. And then there's this, this pious religiosity that Saul responds with. And it's really out of character for Saul. So far, he's not been guided by God. And so he kind of responds with this outward form of religion. And he says, oh, no. The people, oh, suddenly I care about what God thinks. They've broken God's law, so he puts this altar up and, and this big rock so they might not sin against the Lord. And you think at first, well, maybe he's, he's really following God, but it's really just the form. It's just the ceremonial laws of God. He's not following God from the heart. He's disregarded God's word, chapter 13. Now he's, he's following his own vengeance. So really, this is just this empty religion. It's a show. Remember earlier how he had sacrificed in Samuel for the sake of the people so they would see it? He's kind of doing the same thing here now. He's, he's making a show of religion like he's trying to obey God. Oh, it's really bad because people have told him that. And so he's neglected caring about God from the heart for an outward show of religion. And all this time now, this says something that's really, it should catch your, your eyes. It says, now Saul built an altar, and it was his first altar to the Lord. This is many years later. And if you remember, previously in Samuel, it drew attention to the fact that Saul created an altar to himself already. 
And now it says, this is the first time the king set up an altar to God. This is the first thing he's supposed to do. And so the implication there is he's, he didn't, he was just doing this for show. That was his first show. And so it makes you wonder about his motives. Um, is he just soon to be seen like he had just sacrificed before um, out of expediency? Because you know in verse 36, Saul isn't planning to seek God on his own. He wants to, right after he supposedly is seeking God, he creates this altar. Immediately he starts off and says, you know what? It's nighttime, so how about this? We're going to go, and he says, uh, do a nighttime raid through the woods. We're going to attack them all at night. So look at verse 36. They don't say, do whatever God's given to you. And Paul, Saul doesn't say, I'm going to seek the Lord and see if this will be God. He creates an altar, but he doesn't seek God at the altar. People say, do whatever seems good to you. But then there's this little note here. This corrupt priest is the one who has to remind Saul, oh, by the way, Saul, um, don't you want to seek God here first? We created this altar. That's An altar is meant to seek God. Don't you want to seek God first? You're making these plans. You're stepping out without trusting. You're looking to God. So then he kind of makes this obligatory, seemingly empty inquiry about God after the fact, after he's already made his plans without consulting God. He says, you know, God, are you going to give me the victory if I do that for the people's sake? And God's like, I'm going to have none of that. You're not really seeking me. And so he's silent. And he calls for there to be lots to cast to figure out who must have sinned. The irony there is that it comes out that Jonathan's the one who had eaten, but Jonathan was not really the one who sent. He didn't know about his father's command. And so Saul's seeking of God is not even a real seeking of God. And so in verse 43, Jonathan's taken by Lot, or separated from Saul by Lot, at least. And he asked Jonathan, tell me what have you done, what you have done. And that's the, almost the exact phrase that Samuel used when he goes and he confronted Saul a couple chapters earlier, when Saul was sacrificing, he had not waited for Samuel. And Samuel comes and says, what have you done? He knew the answer. Saul likely knew what his son had done. And, but there's some ironic language. The author's trying to point his back. The one who really sinned was Saul. <clears throat> so Saul tried to cover up. He blamed Samuel before the people. If you remember back when Samuel confronted him and says, what have you done? What is Saul's immediate response? His immediate response is, well, Samuel, you didn't show up in time. It's like later in the day now, you said you're going to show up this morning. You didn't come. And by the way, um, the people were all running away, and they, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. I had to do it. I just had to sacrifice. I had to disobey. Saul makes excuses. Now, here's a big contrast, and we're meant to see this. When Saul confronts his son, who did not sin because he didn't know his father had commanded that, so he wasn't disobeying anything, or maybe it was a sin of omission, and he didn't even know it. He confronts Jonathan. He says, tell me, what have you done? What does Jonathan say? Jonathan, he says, Dad, I've, I, I got a little honey in the woods. And you know what? He doesn't make any excuses. He says, I did it. And I'll suffer the punishment for it. I'll die. I'll take the punishment for this oath. And by the way, he had not, Saul had said, cursed his man. He didn't say that you're going to die or he's going to kill him. But Jonathan says, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the punishment that I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to admit what I did. And maybe he was doing that to, to show a statement to the people. Saul was doing that to show he wasn't biased. Or maybe 
Saul saw it as an opportunity to get rid of his son because he was jealous. We don't know for sure. But Saul, he has no character here. He doesn't recognize that this victory has come through his own son. And he has no mercy. He has no grace. And he says, you will surely die. But the people are scandalized. They know that that, that is wrong. And they ransom Jonathan. They say, there's no way you're going to kill him. You know, and I can imagine Saul finally realizes, if I try to kill Jonathan, they're going to kill me. It's kind of the implication there. They ransomed him. There's no way. They knew Jonathan was the one who brought them victory in the Lord. It was his initiative. He trusted in God. He led the charge against the Philistines. And look at verse 45. It says, Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. The people saw the difference between Jonathan, who was working with God, and Saul, who was working on his own initiative. It says, So the people ransomed Jonathan so he didn't die. Saul should have forgiven Jonathan for going against his word. He made a rash of. But Saul went against not only God's word, knowingly before, not admitted what he had done. Now he's punishing his son he really hadn't sent. So we see Saul's a man of little character because he's not guided by God. By the end of the chapter, Saul's completely isolated from the people around him. Saul's relationship with God is broken. You know, the king is offsetting the people and nobody's standing with Saul. Even though God had given the Philistines in their hands so far, Saul continues to lack courage. Look down your Bibles at verse 46. It ends kind of in a weird way. It kind of started really great, and then it just kind of fizzles out. Look at verse 46. It says, Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Remaining verses of chapter 14, we get this kind of Summary of the remaining years of Saul's conquest, and at times he was valiant, and it tells us that. But by the end of the chapter, verse 52, it says, There was hard or bitter fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. He did not bring peace in his reign, ultimately. He was not the king that the Israelites were looking for. He was not a king of character. He was not a king of grace. He was not a king of mercy. He was not a king of peace. Israel would have to wait a greater king than Saul to gain their victory. And then we kind of see this, this, this overarching idea that the text is kind of teaching us. When you get to the end of this text, you kind of get this, this other point, this other indirect point, really, that you see this overview. What, what has the author been doing? He's been contrasting Saul to Jonathan. Saul to Jonathan. Why is he doing that? He wants us to see something. It's almost evenly split. 23 verses with Jonathan. 23 verses with Saul. Contrasting the two ways. One way of faith. One way of following your own direction that leads to trouble and leads to hard, being hard-pressed or bitter fighting. Jonathan's way leads to great victory in the Lord. Right? Did you see that contrast? 23 verses each. The author's doing something here and he's showing us that we need God to rule us. That's the, the third point, the third and final point. We need God to rule us. That's the implication there. It goes well when God's ruling us, and when we're ruled by God and by faith in God, it does not go well. There's bitter, hard fighting, no peace. And God doesn't rule us. The difference between Saul and Jonathan was Jonathan was first mindful of the Lord, and it was his knowledge of God, his character of God, that led Jonathan to believe great things about God and to attempt great things for God. Saul, on the other hand, he's fearful, he's timid. 
He's sitting in the cave in the beginning. He's confused. He doesn't know exactly what to do. He's kind of following. Oh, there must be a battle going on. I'll go out there and do that. And then he kind of rushes out in the battle. And then he rushes out to tell him. And the priest says, oh, you might want to wait and pursue God. And, and, and then he rashly almost kills his own son. And people have to rescue Saul from being even more ungodly. The king's supposed to lead in godliness. He tries to use the things of God and the corrupted priest to figure out what to do. But Jonathan led the way by faith. Jonathan sought God to give them victory, and the Lord saved Israel that day. That's the result of stepping out in faith, trusting in who God is, as the Lord brings his salvation. Saul's self-sufficiency led the people to go back home. They didn't finish what God had begun. Verse 46 there, Saul illustrates that God's people are not capable of self-rule. God's people are not capable of self-rule. What was the condemnation initially when the people sought a king? It was a king of their own making, a king who would rule them because they were rejecting God's rule. That's been the message of the last few chapters. They've been rejecting God's rule. And this is proving we need God, we need God to rule us. We need God to rule us. Adam and Eve, in the very beginning, they were ruled by God's good and gracious word. God's, God's word, it was, it was limiting, but it was ultimately brought them freedom and life, right? Sometimes we can think that God's word, it's, it's meant to, to keep us from good, where God's word and God's character, his nature, are actually meant so that we would have life and freedom. <coughs> Mankind wasn't created for self-determination. We were created to be ruled by the knowledge of God through His character and through His Word. We are created so it would go well with us when we follow God's Word in faith, listening to Him. You know, in the West here, we love the ideas of, of freedom and liberty, don't we? It's kind of the, the principles that our country was founded on. But we confuse freedom and liberty to being, with, with being able to set our own course in life. And that's like setting our own watch. It will, it will be off every time. See, we're, we were designed to experience true freedom without the, within the bounds of God's good guidance. And God, He's the source of all light and truth. He says, my word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Implications will be in darkness if we're not following who God is and His word and His guidance. Read about Jonathan, though. At the same time, you're thinking... You know, Jonathan followed God all the days of his life, but you can't help but feel sorry for him a little bit, can't you? He's got this jerk of a dad, but Jonathan always, and in, in, in Samuel, we never see Jonathan fail. We see Saul fail. Actually, we see David, even though the promised anointed one, we see David will fail. Jonathan doesn't. We see a picture of faithful service to God and to God's kingdom. Jonathan sees that it's not about his own kingdom, you know, he already knows that his dad's dynasty has been, has been cut off. That means he won't be king. But who really deserves to be king here is Jonathan in this story. Jonathan's faithful. He's a man of integrity. He's brave. He's bold. He follows God. And yet, we don't see him, you know, trying to get his own kingdom. And, you know, if you're an American, you can think, oh, how, what a shame that Jonathan didn't live up to his potential, Right? But he had his calling, and he was living out his calling faithfully. And through the next few chapters, as things begin to change in the book of Samuel, you're going to see that Jonathan's very content to serve the Lord's kingdom and God's will. And he submits his will to that. 
And the author kind of is setting up Jonathan as what it looks like, what it looked like to serve God's kingdom, not your own. He wasn't serving himself, he was serving God's kingdom contentedly. And I was reading recently about one of the founding fathers of the United States who's little known, his name is John Dickinson. Maybe, maybe if you're currently in history class, if you're a student here, you're, you know who that is. But most people wouldn't know who John Dickinson is. But he was a great statesman. Back in the late 1700s, he was known as the penman of the revolution. He called for the formation of the Continental Congress. He was the guy who kind of inspired that. He wrote a Continental Petition to the King in 1774. It failed. He wrote another attempt called the Olive Branch Petition. He, he drafted that. Both of those failed. He called on the Continental Congress to draft the Declaration of the Causes and Necessities of Taking Up Arms, which became the direct Declaration of Independence. <coughs> Somebody else finished. He wrote the first draft. The Articles of Confederation of the Revolution broke out. He called for a constitutional convention. This was one pretty important guy. He became the president of Delaware, the president of Pennsylvania, was before the head governors. But he knew his place. In a book he wrote, titled Letters from a Pennsylvania Farmer, here's what he wrote. He says, I'm a farmer. He had been overseas. He'd been serving in so many capacities publicly. But at the end, he says, I'm a farmer, settled. After a variety of fortunes near the banks of the River Delaware in the province of Pennsylvania, I received a liberal education and been engaged in busy scenes of life. But now I'm convinced that a man may be as happy without bustle as with it. My farm is small. My servants are few and good. I have a little money at interest. I wish for no more. My employment in my own affairs is easy and with a contented, grateful mind. Undisturbed by worldly hopes or fears relating to myself, I am completing the number of days allotted to me by divine goodness. Is that a picture of faith in God, resting, contentedness in God? If you read his biography, you think, man, surely he could have been more, you know? He could have been greater. And, you know, most, most people now have never heard of him. You think, boy, it's, that was a tragic end. But no, it's not at all. It's not a tragic end when you have someone following God like Jonathan. <coughs> John Dickinson was content. There was something to be said for settling down in a small farm. The contented, grateful mind, undisturbed by worldly fears. Completing the number of days allotted to him by divine goodness, he had a view of God allotting his days, and so that brought contentment. Jonathan didn't have a tragic life either. He was led by God's rule. He wasn't a failure because he never came king. He was serving God's kingdom in the place he was called diligently, faithfully, contentedly. Reminds us when the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. He says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. God's called each and every person here to have faith in him. Maybe you don't yet know God, you've not yet placed your faith in God. If so, your life is oriented wrongly, and you will experience not only trouble without, but trouble within. And it's, it's as we place our faith and our trust in God that although this world is full of troubles and fighting all around... You can experience a contentedness, a resting in God as you put your faith, your trust in Him, and He becomes your salvation. Let us, church, let's not get distracted by all the warring around us and battles and tumults and what the numbers look like and, and all the other things that are kind of all in the news right now. <coughs> let's look up and see God's character, His nature. Let's have faith. Let's be ruled by him and trust in him 
and he'll give us contentment and be our salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you bring to us. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for the hope that we have in you, that you are a God who is able to save, whether by many or by few. So God, our hope is not in what we see, not in numbers, not in things around us, but God, our hope is in your character, in your nature. Our hope is in who you are. May we trust in you, contentedly rest in you, faithfully trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.